Hello and welcome back to the Veterans Lounge Podcast. Today, my guest is a man whose career in the Army spanned 24 years. Now to most, that might sound like a pretty successful career. But to my guest, Ferran Dozier, he felt that his career was cut short. Ferran was somebody who was totally bought in to the Army. And he expected his career to span to span well beyond 30 years. Unfortunately for Ferran, circumstances would arise that would prevent him from reaching that goal. Regardless, today Ferran is going to share a story with us that I believe many military veterans can relate to. It's one that talks about the loss of identity and the perilous journey that follows. Ferran's going to talk about how he dealt with those feelings and those emotions and those thoughts. He's going to tell us about how he currently deals with those thoughts and those emotions. And then he's going to share with us how our military training and experience can help us to overcome the war that many veterans currently fight, which is the war in your mind. So without further delay, Ferran Dozier. Hello, welcome back to the Veterans Lounge Podcast. I am your host, Miguel Mata, here with another fantastic veteran. I am really, really excited to hear this story today because um, it really talks to a whole lot of I think it's I think it's a story that many of us veterans are going to be able to relate to. Um, my guest today is Ferran Dozier. Does that sound right? That's good. Awesome. Awesome. I've been called worse. <laughs> Look, you and me both. My last name is Mata. It's been all kinds of it's been all kinds of different ways and sideways. So, but it's important. It's important that that we get our names right. That's what you, that's what your mama called you. That's what I'm going to call you. okay thank you very much Ferran, for being on the for being on the podcast today no problem man thank you can you hear me okay i can okay yeah greatly appreciate you being on the podcast today i tell you what you've got a fantastic story so interesting so compelling so much that we can learn from it um you were in the army yes okay and i know it was a little it's a little ways back i love 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 to hear the stories of why people join the service right yeah you mind sharing that with us what no what not made, at all made you join so i remember being in junior high school and you have the rotc program i was never in that uh but as i got to um graduating high school my uncle uh, who's a few years older than me uh, was in the air force reserve and so i remember seeing him in his blue you know, slacks and the black blue shirt and the hat and all of that. And so one day he asked me, you know, what are you going to do when you get out of high school? And I, I wasn't sure. And so he was like, well, you know, you should, you could try the reserves. He's like, you know, if you do the reserves and you like it, you could always transfer and go full time. But if you go full time first and you don't like it, you'll be stuck for that contract if it's four years or six years, whatever. And so when he put it to me like that, I was like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll check it out. And so I ended up checking it out, took the ASVAB and end up uh, being talked to by a National Guard recruiter. I uh, came to the house, my grandparents' house and, you know, promised me a bonus, like a $2,000 bonus that, you know, it was one week in a month, you know, two weeks out of the year you're for the state emergencies. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm good with that. So I, I joined and um, that transition to basic training pretty much um, I would say like the probably like about the third week of basic training. I remember we had got done with some maneuvers and I was laying on my bunk. Like, what am I doing here? Right. And I remember my uncle had told me, you know, uh, you're going to have to shoot a weapon. You know, these are questions I didn't ask. No, I didn't ask anybody. My uncle's like, you got to shoot a weapon. Uh, you got to take exercise tests. So make sure you start working now. So I remember work exercising and stuff kind of 
going to the tracks and stuff to kind of get my cardio up. But that day on that bunk, man, after we got done with that weapon and plucks crawling through the dirt and the sand, it was like, what am I? And I was at Fort Jackson. So they got red clay. Like, that's not mud. It's clay. <laughs> so I was like, what am I doing here? And I kid you not, I, I could tell you that's where my brain clicked over. And I was no longer a little 19-year-old kid. I became a soldier that, that, that morning. That's pretty cool. Just out of curiosity, what, what year was that? 1989. <laughs> it was a good year. It was 19, baby. So that was, that was the moment that you remember that you turned the key on your, on your, on your being a soldier. Yeah, it was on. So what did you do while you were in the service? Uh, so I was, uh, I started on the, now check this. I started out as a medic is what I signed up for. I was at Fort Sam Houston. Um, the last two weeks of the AIT and I'm playing football for the company that I was in. And I went out for a pass. We were playing against another unit, another unit there. And I went out for this pass and I went to stretch out to catch the ball. And me and the guy tripped up, whatever. And I hit my head on the ground. And so I started having headaches and I just could not focus. I was, like I said, I was in, I was pretty, pretty, pretty bad shape, concussion, minor concussion, I guess you could say. Um, and so I got recycled and, uh, I, and then I got recycled again. They give you two shots and I just couldn't, my brain was just, I was out of it. So they called my unit and it was like, Hey, you either, we got to find them another job skill or we're going to have to send them home. And so my unit says, Hey, we got a, uh, field handler truck driver position. You know, you'll be in transportation company driving vehicles, you know, are you, are you okay with that? I'm like, well, when is that? I think that was more like um, March or so. So it gave me some time to kind of heal whatever I was dealing with. So I was like, yeah, I'll take that. Like, I didn't want to come home. So I'm like, yeah, I'll take that. So they picked that school for me at Fort Lee, Virginia. So I remember staying over in um, Fort Sam Houston over the holidays and then ended up going to um, Fort Lee for the for the pol school so i did that and then i came back and during that time uh i was with the infantry company in inglewood california and i liked it i mean my uncle was correct like i enjoyed i was a soldier like i did it like everything was fine and so one day i was like i think i want to do this full time and so i did my research and i crossed over to become full-time uh i became a supply uh clerk but I was in charge of the supply system and I was an S4 clerk. Like I was a dual, you know, a dual job for that company. And so I ended up doing that. And then I got promoted. I got asked to transfer to a um, maintenance company. And so I had to go to maintenance school to be uh, a track vehicle repair because that was a MOS for that job. And so I transferred over. And so I had three MOSs, supply, track vehicle repair, and, and uh, fuel handler truck driver. I enjoy the truck driving too. Wow. Man. Three yeah. MOSs. Three MOSs. Man, that's, that's crazy. Is that pretty common in the Army to get m multiple MOSs? <laughs> it just depends on how. <laughs> okay, so regardless, you've got three M MOSs. You're n now highly trained ind individual. You're completely bought into the Army. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is it, is it, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you you were eight up, if you will, right? <laughs> I was in. So, okay, so... How long did that, how long, how long were you in? Uh, 24 years total service. Ooh, so you were totally bought in. Yeah. You were totally bought in. Man, I'll tell you what, that's, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, unfortunately, though, it doesn't have such a happy ending. Your career doesn't have so, such a happy ending. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I want to say I made that, that long career haul um, at 25. I don't know what it is about 25 because my daughter's, we're in that same space about at 25. I got to have, I got to move out. I got to do all these things. And so I remember me being 25, like, okay, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? Um, because I had people tell me, if you make it to 12 years, then you might as well stay, you know? So you want to pull the plug somewhere between 10 and 12 years, because if you could do that long, the last eight is, is, is cakewalk, you know? So I was like, okay. So at some point I was like, okay, and I know I was 25. I was like, okay, am I going to stay or am I going to, you know, am I going to get out? And I said, nah, I'm going to stay. So that was my, you know, decision 
at 25 to whatever I was going to go through, I was going to make it work. And so um, that last, let's see, I was E7, I made E7 uh, during my deployment. And then I was ready to get on the E8 list. So it, they called it ANOC back then in 2006. So I signed up, I went to ANOC, and it was a normal exercise morning. I got up and, and do the push-ups and sit-ups in a two-mile run. And so I was out on the track that morning. It was like 5.30 in the morning or whatever. And I did the push-ups, sit-ups, and then I'm out doing the, the laps for the two-mile run. And so I was 36 at the time. And so I had 17.21 to pass. So I'm out. I, I'm coming around the last curve, and I hear my instructor, 15.45, 15.46. And I'm like, ooh, I'm I'm good. Like I, I got seventeen twenty one, so I'm I'm doing pretty good. So of course we're trained to sprint that last lap. So my 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 subconscious mind kicks in, and I can remember saying, you know, let's get this run over with, so we can get some rest. And I kick in that gear to take off and sprint. Um, and I did, you know, after I look back, I did feel like a electrical charge, like this like this buzz sensation come over my body. But I didn't think anything of it, you know. So I took off, sprinted. Uh, 16 minutes was my time. So, you know, I was proud of that. Uh, put my hands over my head to get air in my lungs, all the stuff that we're trained to do, you know, when you complete that fitness test. Um, but all of a sudden, my peripheral started getting dark. And I'm like, man, I don't feel well. And I just kind of, you know, I was kind of feeling nauseated. And um, I laid, I put my knee down and was like, and as my peripheral got dark, I'm like, all right, I, I'm, I'm, I'm out. So I'm, I laid down on the ground and closed my eyes because everything started to spin like a million miles an hour. So I did that, closed my eyes real tight, uh, opened them up. And like I said, everything was spinning. So the medics came and got me, uh, rushed me to the hospital. And the doctor puts an IV in my arm and comes back and says, you ever had kidney problems? No. What do you do now? And then he walks away. And I'm like, what the heck? So he comes back in and says, you know what? Freak accident. Probably dehydrated, heat stroke, heat exhaustion. I'm like, that don't make sense. Like it's four, it was you know six o'clock in the morning. Like what what, what heat stroke are you talking like? So it, it didn't make sense. But he was like maybe heat stroke, dehydration. I'm like okay, cool. He's like I'll give you another IV. Go back to the barracks, take the rest of the day off. You should be fine, you know. And so the instructor says, yeah, we're this is a light day. We're not testing, so you can take the day off and be ready for Friday because it was a Thursday. I'm like okay, cool. I go back to the barracks. I lay down. Um, I wake up mid-afternoon I would imagine and I'm worse everything is still spinning I'm nauseated I'm throwing up I try to drink water Gatorade eat a banana like all my little snacks I had there nothing would stay down barely made it to the bathroom like I almost crapped on myself like I was in a terrible state um, so I make it back to the bunk I lay down and go back to sleep uh, I'm sure it's 16 30 because my classmates come back in the barracks and they see me and they're like oh you're not well I'm like no so they get the instructors and they rushed me back to the hospital um, that night. And so the night doctor um, did some blood work and did some tests. And he saw that my creatinine kinase levels, CK levels were like 12,000 and rising. So the creatinine kinase levels at age 36 were supposed to be about 150. They were 12,000. So there is a condition called rhabdomyolysis, which is a skeletal muscular disorder. And so what happens with that disorder is if you overexert yourself, the muscles start to break down and they leak into the bloodstream and the negative um, enzymes and the myoglobin from the muscles start to hit in the kidneys and that starts to cause the renal failure. So the doctor, morning doctor, did see some kidney stuff going on, but he was like, ah, freak accident, whatever, you should be fine. So by the time I got back that night, my kidneys were at 50% each. They were failing. Um, I had, again, I could barely walk. So I had severe muscle um, damage, joint damage. Um, and so the night doctor just said, okay, well, we're going to put you on IVs to flush out your kidneys and see what happens. And so I spent four days in the hospital on IVs, um, just flushing out my kidneys. And that was about the three and a half day. I was able to finally walk to the bathroom by myself with the little IV machine, you know, and, and so um, my family came and got me. They diagnosed me with the rhabdo and I went home to go see my regular doctor. And I went to back to the, my doctor and 
he wasn't sure what to do. So he sent me to a neurologist because I was still having vertigo. I was still having the dizzy spells and stuff. So they sent me to a, a neurologist to see if there was something going on with my brain or whatever. And so the doctor said he saw something, but he was one of the more concerned about my CK levels because they were still like 600. They were high still. So he put me on a, a plan to just exercise myself, you know, no, 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 no real back to the regular, you know, regular duty type of stuff, exercising. So I would go to the gym on my own and shoot baskets. I was a basketball player and stuff. So, but I got on the treadmill and I felt like I got off a roller coaster ride. I was still like just kind of out of it. So we went through that for like two and a half years from 2006 until 2009. And the doctor was like, you know what? You just can't run anymore. And I'm like, all right, I'm cool with that. I could do the bicycle or the walk or something. You know, there's other, um, I don't swim. So the, the myth is real. I don't swim. So uh, I figured I'd just, you know, take one of those you know, activities. So I turned my paperwork in to the um, state surgeon facility and all that. And when they saw that, they was like, oh no, you're done. Like we need to figure out what happened. I'm like, nah, like that was like almost three years ago. Like just, I'm cool. Just give me the profile or whatever, you know, let me, you know, let me do this other thing. I've seen people have worse stuff than what I'm experiencing. So I should be fine. I'm good. I just can't run. They were like, nah, we got to we gotta do some more research on you. And so they put me on a P4 profile, which then I was undeployable. I couldn't carry a weapon. Like, I, I couldn't do anything. I could just wear my Once uniform. Once was with readiness, you Oh, yeah, my readiness. Yeah, you yeah, buddy. on the list. Yes. That so it, that, that I mean, was my it, downfall. It, but you, you, get, you know, if it messes with readiness. Yes. It's like they got, I mean, yeah. Yes. So that's, that's, that was what got me. Um, and so I remember after they told me all that and gave me the profile, I remember this email came in and it had, of course, my name on it and my soldier's name. So of course, I'm going to look at my name and see what my status is. And it had pending discharge next to my name. And I could tell you, as I sorted through my, you know, after I started kind of getting in a better space, I started to look at like what happened. And I remember reading that email. And I remember saying to myself, man, my life is over. Like, I'm like, and, and nobody talked to me. Like, wait a minute, somebody's supposed to, and then I'm supposed to go to some kind of board or something. Like, why would it, why would it say pending discharge and nobody's done no physical? Like, I haven't talked to anybody. So I, right away, I, I replied and I called that person who sent that email. I said, hey, um, my name has pending discharge next to it. What's up with that? They were like, oh, that's a mistake you got to go through a board and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right, okay, I'm cool. But I had already read it. I had already downloaded it in my heart. So now can you imagine being at work and that phone rings and I'm like, is this the call that's going to end my career? And so I, I became like a zombie at work, like the stress. Um, so now, now, now I'm not only dealing with my physical pain, but now I'm dealing with my mental and I've never had mental issues, like mental toughness. Like, hey, I, I go to the gym and leave it all on the court. You know, basketball was my outlet. But when I had that physical injury, I couldn't play basketball anymore. So I had no outlet. I can articulate it to you now, but at the time, I, I had no outlet. And so with, you know, with the physical pain and now the mental pain, uh, I remember just laying in the bed. And my buddy, he was also... Um, we worked together and he was like, man, you know, this is probably like months into it. Like, man, you need to, you need to, you want to go to the, to the bar? Like, you don't want to do nothing no more. You don't even want to watch sports. I'm like, nah, nah, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to lay down. I'm, I'm gonna lay. So another friend of mine saw me in that state and was like, man, you need to, you need to do something. Like you a sports fan, like go do a, um, they got this thing called blog talk, like go do a talk show or something. Like you need to figure out something to kind of get your mind. And so I was like, all right. So I, I did some research on the blog talk. And so the blog talk was where I was able to kind of keep my sports mindset going. Um, but yeah, it was, I was in a very, I was in a very depressed and what, what is state. blog talk, if you don't mind me asking? So blog talk back in, <laughs> in the like 2009, um, it was, it was the original starting of podcasting. Like it was just straight audio platform. It was okay. free. Um, and you could 
host shows on there. People had talk shows on there. So that, that was like at the beginning of podcast went before so you're you're a podcaster from way back then oh yeah i I, i'm 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 an old grandfather at it (laughs) you've been you've been in this in the podcasting game for a while yeah so So i use that what had happened i guess what had happened right is that you know and we're going to get into this more already you were it your identity yes was being messed with in your oh yes definitely psychologically your identity had been it's not tainted. I'm not going to be tainted, but it was being challenged. Yeah. Your identity was being challenged. So I, when you say that, then that, again, you know, I can articulate that to you now, because when I look back at making it mean my life was over, it was my identity crisis because I had spent all that time in the service and my identity was in the camouflage. So I don't know who, who, who's, I don't know, Ferran. I'm like, no, I'm a, I'm Sergeant first class. You know, and, and, and I can tell you when that changed was when I became an E4, I mean, from E4 to E5. So when I went from E4 to E5, I became sergeant. And so, you know, what comes with that, some little pride, you know, you're NCO now. And so, you know, you're at another level and people treat you a little bit better now. And so that whole mind. And so I would take it seriously. You're taking it seriously yeah. now. Yeah. So E5, E6, E7, you know, as you move up the chain, it's like it is harder to take your rank away once you get to seven. So, I mean, you know, and E6s have a lot of respect, too. So it was like, man, so that identity definitely um was was trapped so before we before we get to talking about identity uh any further what happened what ended up happening with your career so one day i was on the base and i was headed home and the officer that served with we served together he was a platoon leader i was the platoon sergeant and we worked together that year of the deployment Never talked about sickle cell trait, but he sees me on the base like five years later. He's like, how you been? I'm like, man, you don't want to know. He's like, nah, tell me. I'm like, man, I could barely walk. Like I'm having these issues. I'm, up, I'm just leaving a mental health appointment, man. I don't know what's happening to me. He's like, you know what? Something like that happened to me where my muscles locked up, but I have sickle cell trait. So I have to drink extra water, take these vitamins. I'm like, wait a minute. Why does that sound familiar? And then I remembered in 1999, I was transferring to Michigan and I had to take my second physical. And so I was stationed near an Air Force base. So that's where we did the physical at the Air Force base. So when I did my physical for that um, supply job, the f- clinic called me back. Like, you need to come back to the clinic like like today. And I'm like, um, OK. So I go back to the clinic and I'm like, all right, what's going on? He's like, do you know you have sickle cell trait? I'm like, no, this is 1999. I'm 10 years already in the service. Right? I joined at 19, so I'm 29 years old in 99. And he's like, I'm like, no, I don't, I don't know. No, I don't have, no. He's like, okay, we, we just want to let you know you're a trait carrier. Um, I'm like, wait a minute, I have a cousin with sickle cell disease. It's not the disease. He's like, no, no, it's not the disease. You're your carrier. So just make sure you don't mate with another person with this gene because you could have a child with sickle cell disease and all that. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm done having kids. So that's, I'm not worried about that. Okay, cool. No, no, no risk factors, no brochure, no nothing. And, and I didn't think about it. I'm packing up my house to go, my apartment to go move out of state. So I'm PCS. And so I'm not thinking I'm, no more. I didn't think about it anymore in my career from 99 until 2010, where my buddy says, I have sickle cell trait. And then that triggered my, my, my memory. I went and got that physical from 99. Sure enough, positive sickle cell trait test. I took that to my rheumatologist and was like, hey, you need to look at this because I, I found that um, what happened to me is similar to this sickle cell trait exertion with rhabdomyolysis and people have died and things. And, and so she sure enough, she did uh, another blood test, positive sickle cell trait. Um, almost 40 percent of my red blood cells are the S gene. And so she was able to connect that to my exertion with the rhabdo and all of my injuries. And when I gave that to the military, they was, it was like, a rap, yeah, huh? it was a rap. You're, yeah, you're done. I'm like, come on, man. No, they were like, yeah. And how much, time, how much time had you put in at that point? I had 23 years and, and like 11, 10, 11 months. 
Through, and so by the time they right put me out, 24, right yeah, so right, 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 it was, was right when they put me out, I had 24 and, and, and some days. And they didn't waste no time, huh? <laughs> yeah, it took them. It took them from, no, actually, it took them from 2013, I mean, 2010 when they started it to 2013. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I, I hadn't, I hadn't needed, you know, I wanted to get, cause I wasn't done. I wanted right. to stay longer. So my, my goal was to stay 32 years. Uh, make E8 and stay 32 years, and then I was going to be out. But because you were bought in, man, that was your yeah. identity. That was <laughs> that was your home. That was me, man. So I, I, so now now yeah, here we are at this position, or here you're at that point. Yeah, tell me about it. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? Um, I was still severely depressed. It was over. It was it was over. That that conversation that they told me that I, the medical board was taking place and the situation that I had to go through and get physicals and, and get my mental health checked and all that. I was like, man, I'm, I, I'd rather die in country as a hero than die in the city as an a-hole, you know? And, and so that was some of the stuff that I was dealing with. And, and then I just started having these crazy thoughts, like maybe nobody would miss me. Like who, nobody cares. Like my, my marriage fell apart because my life is over. So everything that I started looking for the evidence in my life to verify why my life was over. Started to justify it. Yeah, I, ju I justified it. I justified it to the point where there was one, I was trying to talk to my mom one morning and, you know, mothers, you know, she has her concerns and I'm like, nah, like I need some help. Like mom, like, like she's like, oh, you need to stop it, you know, do whatever. And now I'm like, mom, you know what? You don't, you're not listening to me. And she's like, what? I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I'm out. She's like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm getting my car and I'm about to jump on the freeway and I'm, I'm done. And she was like, what are you doing? You better stop. I jumped on the freeway, man. I'm like, you're not listening to me. You're not. Li and I was, got cranked it up. I had a 370Z and I kept my sports car because that was my plan that if I wanted to do it, I was going to do it in my favorite car. So I jumped on that freeway, man, and I hit the gas. And my mom is on the speakerphone like, you better not. What are you doing? Go back home. And there was a second that I thought about my youngest daughter. And I was like, I can't do that. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, I know I'm tougher than this. Like, I've never had these kind of thoughts or issues in my life. Like, what is this? So I thought about my little daughter. And I, and I went, I, got, I pulled off the next exit and went back to home and I parked the car and my mom was, you know, we had finished talking to my mom and she kind of heard me at that point. And so my youngest daughter, Deja, I would put her at the forefront of my thoughts. Like, I can't leave that. I can't leave her like that. So I focused on her, man, emotionally. I focused on her mainly to fight through those ideas of jumping off the roof or driving the car or using my pistol, like all those different things. Like I had the plan, but I also had a willingness to live still. Like I, like I know I'm better than this. And so a friend of mine, they saw me in that state um, in 2010, 2011. And they were like, uh, there's an education that we're taking called landmark education. You should, you know, you should take it. it you know, it could help. I'm like, nah, I'm good. I'm good. So I'm not seeing, I was seeing um, the, the psychiatrist, right? And they tried to put me on all the medications. So I fought them because I'm like, I'm not, no, no. I'm like, no, I'm not, you're not, I'm not going to become no zombie. No, no. I fought the Prozac. I tried it like, no, you know, so um, they, they introduced me to this education. So finally, about the third time, I was like, all right, I'll try it. I'll, I'll go. So they like, you don't have to pay for it. It's all covered. You just pick the dates. And so in that education, that Friday is three days and a Tuesday evening. And that first day on Friday, I sat in my chair and it's like 170 people in a room and one coach at the front of the room. And he's going through their landmark distinctions. And he brings up a conversation about the vicious circle. And I'm like, okay, I'm interested in that one. So, so as he's going through it, he's like, where, look in your life where you made up a story where you made up a story that's and it's and we're, it, it might not be true. And so when he said that, that my career story right in my face, like right, like right in my face, like, okay, why did that 
thought pop in. And so I grabbed it and I went through the steps as he gave us to unravel and look and see what the vicious circle looks like. So in short, what happens versus what we make it mean. So what happened was the military said that I was going to be getting a medical discharge. I made it mean my life is over. So when, that, so when those two circles collapsed, it was, well, because my life is over and all the evidence and all the stuff that happened to me and everything. And so that's the circles, the vicious circle. And when he said that, what it looks like. And I, I saw me sitting at the desk that day. I saw me reading that email. I saw, like, I saw that all play back that story in my head. He was like, what if I told you that that's not the truth? What if that's just your truth, but it's not the truth? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> and when I did that, I kid you not, I felt like this tons of weights just kind of come off my shoulder and was like, wait a minute, you mean I made that up? You mean what happened versus what I made it mean was not the same thing? And just that enough cl clarity started me to look like, okay, then what else is not true that I made up in my life? Right? So then wow. you start to dig <laughs> and you start pulling up these episodes in your subconscious mind that are significant and they play back in. I mean, these stories that I discovered played in my mind, like they would always pop up. Like, why do I remember that day? Like, why does that day remember? Like, why does I remember like being a little kid over here and this happening? And what is that? And all decisions that I had made up as a child, that wasn't the truth. They were my truth, but they wasn't, they weren't the truth. And when I was able to challenge that, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna yeah I'm gonna say it okay so I'm gonna piggyback only only to bring the point home for any veterans who might be listening because I can relate nearly 100% to the story that you're telling because when I was in transition I visited mental health and in my 20 years, I had never once even, it had never even occurred to me to visit the place. But yeah. that, that transition, that, that loss of identity, that challenge to your identity is so significant because yeah. it's a lifestyle. Mil the military is a lifestyle. Yes. You are, you become this person. Okay. And I can remember in my mind, the first time when I really, when I really had a problem with it, like mm. you can prepare and prepare and prepare <laughs> for the post-military life. But until you experience it in, in your own way, yeah. is is when it is you, you won't you 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 won't be ready for it. But yeah. just know that it's going to be okay. But for me, it was I, I called a, an office. I called an office on the on base for something, and I can't remember what it was. And they called me Mister Mata instead of Sergeant Mata. And I had been Sergeant Mata for so many years, and it like hit me different. I was like, yeah, like I wanted to correct the dude, but I was like. <laughs> No, nah, man, that's like, I'm not that guy anymore. My wife actually helped me out a little bit by saying, because I was talking to her about it. And she said, you'll always be that guy, but you're not just that guy. Mm. You're all kinds of, uh, you're, you're all the, you're all kinds of other things. And if there's anything that I could impart on, on uh, veterans who might be dealing with that similar, that similar situation where you just feel like this is who you are and there, then there is nothing after yeah, I can tell you that it's not true. Yeah. It takes time and it will be okay. And it helps if you find something like you're about to share with us that you can invest, you can invest your energy into that yes. you're passionate about uh, because I'm doing this right now. You're doing what you do. And it look, and I'm, and I'm going to get real and, <laughs> and, and comment on this one thing too, by saying, um, and and I and I heard this from another guy that was talking on on um on TV when he said something like he had suicidal thoughts because it just made sense. Yeah, it just made sense that following the end of his military career, it just made sense to die. Yeah, like that was it. Life was over. Yeah, 
I had that same feeling. Yeah. It just made sense that that was the it. That was it. That was the end of life. It just made sense. And it's just, you don't know. And, and, and for me personally, you don't think about who's going to be impacted by it. You don't mm-hmm. think about, you know, what comes after. You just know that that is the end and it makes sense. And like you said, because we bought in, I bought in at nineteen. I, I bought in at 19. At 19, I retired medically at 43. I bought in when I realized, I told you when my brain clicked, I realized these, these guys are teaching me how I'm going to survive. They're teaching me these are tactical skills. Like I'm, and they would tell you, you know, I don't care where your wife is at. You don't, you don't daydream about where your girlfriend is at. You don't daydream about your wife because if you just that one second of you on the battlefield daydreaming about missing your girlfriend or missing your wife, that you can get your whole squad killed just by day. And I was like, oh my gosh. So when you, when you buy in, you, it's, and it was like my family didn't know like what I did. <laughs> and, it, and I kept them separate from it, not as a good thing, but it, it was definitely a factor at 19 and believing those principles and the objectification. And that's what I learned just recently about the mentality of us as veterans but but not just us as veterans but as a human being that we objectify and when you objectify people it disconnects you from that human connection and so i want and i want to say this as veterans we're not different than our counterparts who are veterans of athletics and it's i i hate this example but the football player Junior Seau, who retired, who had an awesome career, retired and felt his life was over and he pulls the trigger like that. So the, the, it's, it's a human being flaw. But when you look at it as from veterans, athletics, no different because the identity of that guy playing football since you was five years old or two years old and you grow up and you you're able to make it to high school football. You're able to make it to college. You're able to make it to the pros and you don't deal with all your life stuff that happens. You know, you don't deal with the divorce. You don't deal with your parents dying. You don't deal with your grandmother dying. And then all that stuff is stored that we think we can put it in another compartment of our brain. And then when you're at home and and everything's quiet, it's like, well, then what's next? (laughs) Like, Oh, it's over. It's like, no man like that guy had an awesome career and i'm sure he could have had an awesome future but that mindset and, it, and it's like it's a human being flaw and and that's why i like sharing my story because i the mentality that we have as veterans is that civilians don't understand us and i tell you that is true it is a true statement but it's not the truth and i don't want people to understand me because i don't understand me I ask you to relate to me. So if you could relate to me and you could put yourself in my shoe and be like, man, if that was me, I probably would feel the same way. Then, then now we can have a conversation because if you're trying to understand me, you're not listening to what I don't know about that. So you're just throwing out what I'm telling you aside to try to make so you can No, I don't want you to do that. I want you to just sit, relate to me and imagine if that was you, what would you do in that situation? That's a, I think that's a great, uh, that's a great way of putting that because yeah. isn't that the way society is? They're trying to understand you. So yeah. then they only, they only try to react and respond, yeah. right? Listen to respond. But if yes. you relate to someone, you're making the, the conscious effort to connect. Therefore exactly. you're trying to, you know, the understanding comes, you know, is, will become a natural part of exactly. it. Exactly. That's the end result. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I'm going to, I, I want to get into, you know, what you're investing your energy into, but before I do that, I just want to say one last thing, which is okay. to say, which is that, um, just to put emphasis on what you just said about, it's true that you were a better, as a veteran, you were, you were a veteran, but you're more than that. Yes. You're, you're you as a person. And you are more you are more than more than just a veteran you are yeah. a person you're a person with with needs and desires and energy and if there's anything that the military has given you that has that will prepare you for this stage of life it's the energy and the know-how and the savvy and the ability and all all the good things to be able to 
to invest your whatever passion you invest yourself invest in it's going to be done in a in a great way yeah excellent and it, because that's that's the only way we know we know how to do things okay so from so you you reach you do reach that dark that dark moment you you start going to these classes that were provided by the va right the va was no the no these, oh. these, these were from some friends who introduced me to this education i paid for it out of my own pocket okay like, so you like, go to these education classes mm-hmm. and the mindset the mindset begins to start to change and what's that look like for you so again in that education they talk about if you made up all these stories in your life that obviously we just showed you that we're not the truth about who you are, then now who are you, right? Then now what's your purpose, right? And so I looked and like, okay, um, this inherited gene that I was born with, hmm, that, was this, that gene got me kicked out of the service. <laughs> I looked in that, I did some research on that gene and found that military personnel have died from it football players have died from it um all the different branches of service members air force navy marine have died some have died from the same experience that I, but i lived so why did i live i must have lived to share my story so i took that negative so instead of you know still being up at three or four o'clock in the morning worrying about what my life was i was doing research and looking up sickle cell training, what is that? And where does it come from? And what does it do? And why? And why? And I saw that the military, you know, had blocked people with sickle cell disease from joining in the 70s, you know? And so then I looked and saw there was 300 million people globally with this inherited gene. So I'm not by myself. So then I saw, like, now I could, instead of serving this country, I can now serve this community. Like, I have a space that my voice is needed because I lived and if I could share my story and maybe help somebody else catch their issue before having this kind of collapse issue. And so that's where I started putting my, my, my full energy. It was a good thing, but it wasn't, it was, it still was a bad thing because I created another identity as an advocate. (laughs) And so I, you have to be careful because we will look to identify with some kind of way in life that, and so I started to just kind of, I got to figure out who is Farhan, like who is Farhan, but the depression, and I still deal with it today, like I lost interest in sports, like I used to be this huge fan, like I don't, like I, the sports I care about now is the mental aspect of it, the mental toughness. So that I don't do sports highlights. Like I don't want. I don't care how many touchdowns or how many points they scored or who's on what team anymore. It's about the mentality. Because if you look at those basketball players, they're struggling. They're where you know they're struggling with life still. So it's like I'm, I'm into that mental toughness. And so being able to share my story um, and advocate for this community of people, like you said, I use all of my military tactics i use all of my military mindset i use all of my military thought process and i put that energy into this advocacy conversation about sickle cell trait and that's that has allowed me that willingness that when i do think about my life is over no there's there's 300 million people out there man that that they need to hear you you haven't reached them all yet like you haven't reached them yet so that's that's my what my what's next and so i want to say that that there could be something in your life that you experienced or that you were born with that might be the reason why you're here and that that military career was just to get you to that point cuz god knows i would still be i'd be i would still be in the service right now <laughs> so if i believe my spirituality and god has a plan and we're all born for a reason I also have to start thinking about that too. So that starts to help that willingness to want to stay alive because God, God, God took me through that for a reason. Well, I appreciate you. Um, I appreciate you using my platform to share such an important message. Um, your story, obviously, and, and your cause, definitely. 
Uh, what are so what, what are some other different ways that you that you've used or that you are using currently to uh, spread the message about um, sickle cell trait? So um, that that blog talk show from from 2010, I still have that um, show. I use that platform as well um, to interview. So what I did was I started getting connected to the community of people. Um, I made friends with people with sickle cell disease because their parents are like me, they're trait carriers. That's how they got that disease. So I started making myself known as a sickle cell trait advocate in the midst of that community. So now people send me messages when things happen in the, in the news, people send me information. And so I've, I've in, I just interviewed a woman, a mother who lost her daughter to sickle cell trait with rhabdomyolysis at a Navy Academy. She was in Navy boot camp. And so I, the, the article came out in the news. People sent it to me. I, I looked, I read the article. I saw the mom's name. I, I did my research. I found her on Facebook. I found, you know, and I just sent her messages like, hey, this is who I am. I experienced this. If this is what happened with your family, I'm willing to help, you know, if I can help you find answers or get questions or to ask the military or whatever. And so took her, took her about a week or so. She responded. And I gave her information. And then that was probably about a year, almost two years ago. And she agreed finally last week. And she came on my, my, other, my other talk show to share. What's the, what's the name of your talk show? So my talk show uh, currently is the Fran Dozier Show. It's a music marks your place in time, the soundtrack to your life. So I use that to take the music of the person's life, the soundtrack to their life, and I, we tell their story connect to the music so the mom played songs that reminded her of her daughter and you know her life like that and so very very emotional um and touching um so i i don't I, we're going a little long and i might i okay. may have to split up this into two episodes maybe but i tell you i do really really appreciate you sharing so much of yourself I, there's still like one more thing i want to get into okay you go because ahead. You, you talked about in our little pre-episode okay in our pre-interview and which is you found a mentor in yes. that process right and yes. i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about him so during this journey um uh what i did I also created a, a, a show called trench talk um, and that was my other therapy that i connect con kept me connected to the military so i would start interviewing other soldiers from you know they say the vietnam era they don't share their stories but i was able to get some stories out of some vietnam veterans i was able to meet um, some there's uh, a storm vet, so I went through just people who I met who had served, and so at this one particular day, I was at a, a veteran home, and my friend had invited me. I was doing a sports show, and she had invited me to interview the basketball player that was on our show. His grandfather is a World War II veteran, so she was like, "Fine, we're going to the house. Like, you should come, you know, and interview him." I was like, "Eh, all right." I'll go. So I went and I walk in, I introduce myself, of course. And then, so I do the interview with him. And now my mentor now Caldwell Williams was, I remember seeing him there. And so when I got done with the interview, uh, he was like, Hey, can I talk to you? I'm like, yeah, sure. And so it's like, I'm Caldwell Williams. You know, I'm an educator. So I used to do, uh, I'm out, I'm, I'm coming out of retirement. I've been, um, I have a program and curriculum that helps um, interrupt veteran suicide. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. So I'm like, yeah, give me, I give him my email. Before I could get home, he had emailed me his information and the stuff he had done and some videos. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, this is my life. Like, you're doing exactly what I just been through and what I'm dealing with. And so he's like, well, come and take my class. So I, I went out. I sat with him for two days. I took his curriculum. And I learned some more stuff about myself from his dialogue skills and how to talk and how to listen, right? The key is how to listen and how to listen without judgment, how to listen without defending, like puts you in a whole different space. And I was like, wow. So he's 87 today and his wife passed away from Alzheimer's just last year. And he's like, look, I need to get this out of my system. So you and I have connected. We've been talking for three years. 
And he's like, I want to bring this education back to the community before I die. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let's do it. So I have been working with him um, diligently the last year, trying to get this education in front of superintendents of schools, um, NBA basketball team owners, actors, like trying to get somebody to listen that says, hey, this education that this man has been doing for 50 plus years. So he's been healing youth since the 1970s, 60s. And it works. It's a simple conversation. It's a principle-based conversation about exclusion and inclusion. And as we talked about, silent traumas are from some exclusions. Whether it's your parents tell you, go to your room. Or because I said so. Like, that once that child feels like they're not connected to you and they're excluded from the family, go stand in the corner. Like all the things that we use to control by dominance and punishment, those are silent traumas. And then you have the complex issues of when you can tell the difference between a, a firecracker and a gunshot, right? But then you also look at the race exclusion. African-Americans, we objectify. Hispanics, like, those are silent traumas, emotional silent traumas. So the society is dealing with so, so many silent traumas that we're an emotional wreck. <laughs> and so even, even for the white person who feels included because of their race, it's just a reverse of exclusion because they feel included. So you're dealing with inclusion and exclusion as a silent trauma. And when you are able to sit and sort through that through your life and, and through language and realize that that's what's at the core of underneath all of all your issues. He talks about the guy that put his knee on the neck of George Floyd, that cop. He says, Fran, that cop is hurting. If you look at his background of where he's from, his parents, his ancestors are probably indigent servants so they're they were excluded and and so now he grows up well i'm included because i'm white and i'm objectifying you because you're the other because you're black so now i'm a cop so now you're a criminal you're not a person objectification disconnects us from that human connection so when we when the cops objectify like military we objectify the enemy cops objectify the criminals to us as criminals. So you're not human. So he's like, Fran, that, that cop is, they put him in jail, but he's hurt. He's scarred from his own past, but nobody cares about that. So his education, man, is so phenomenal. And so we, we're, we're at the point where I've got some videos on my social media and I've had him do some interviews and I've, I've recorded him talking. He's got so much knowledge. And like I said, if you break it down into practical conversation and language, inclusion and exclusion is at the core of our human emotions. And there's so much, you can't concentrate, you can't have integrity if you feel excluded. Like you can't, you're not whole and complete. So those, and you imagine that happens over time. Yep. We're suffering as a as yep. a race of people we're suffering. You are talking about you're going into so much depth <laughs> and you're so well, you're scratching the surface of some yes. really deep conversations and some deep philosophical conversation and some deep um psychological conversation. Yes. Um, He's a mental health educator. Right, right. It's cool. So, that's what he is, a mental health educator. So um you're and and it's all very fascinating and I encourage people <laughs> to look into that stuff if any of that stuff intrigues anyone even if you're even if you're not even if you don't buy it i still encourage you to look into it just as a philosophy and as as a uh, yeah just as a philosophy um you know right along there you can get into the diaspora philosophy and how people are are displaced and and whatnot 
Yes. And and the the psychological and emotional star- scars that get carried generation to generation. And the, um, and that's what's and, you and that's what the media perpet that's what the media keeps putting out and then in the right they just just the black and white conversation is enough to keep us separated because yeah. there's a sense of entitlement. We got to go ahead and wrap up here. We we did go kind of long, but gosh, Almighty, you had so much good stuff to share, and it, uh, I might ask you to come on and, <laughs> because I know I'm not going to be able to use all of this. Yeah. So what I what what I have to exclude, I may ask you to come on a second time so we can get into it and just use a full episode on it on it no later if you, if you don't mind. No, but no problem. This has been the Veterans Lounge Podcast. Miguel Mata, your host. My guest today was Ferran. Dozier. Yes. All right. For on Dozier. Yeah, man. Whew, man, it's already been a whole, uh, it's been a whole hour. I almost <laughs> forgot about it. But anyway, I, I really appreciate Ferran. You spending some time with us and sharing so much of your story and what a great story it was. And, um, and what, a, and what a great story of, of once again, resilience and overcoming, um, overcoming that, those, that dark, that dark, dark place that we can, that we can go to, especially when it comes to, uh, when we struggle with our identity and and having to make that transition into into civilian life and and especially under the the conditions that you shared where it wasn't on your terms yeah right so thank you for sharing what that looked like for you and that you're doing okay now right like i said i got the willingness to live so that's that's my drive i, I still yeah. have to manage it yeah it's like once you crack that box open you've got to it's it's a constant you know something you got to tend to yeah so, yeah but I, I i definitely have my days there are some days i don't want to get out of bed there are some days that i still feel like my of course my i live in a pain seven so it's like my body reminds me you know that's and that last piece i'll tell you is you got to have that forgiveness of yourself because what i didn't tell you was i was mad at myself for sprinting that day and if i didn't sprint i could still be in the service so I have to forgive myself every day, remind myself that it's not my fault. You're okay. It's, just, it's God's plan. Not you have no control. So that's that's how I maintain. I tell you, it takes all of it <laughs> to use everything that I've learned. I pull from from my spirituality to the cognitive behavior classes to the landmark education, and then the relatedness that I meet with other veterans like yourself. That I'm not I'm not by myself. You are definitely not by yourself. Yeah. You can reach out anytime if you ever if you ever feel like you need anything. Um, if I can't help you, I, I will definitely do my very best to point you in a direction that where you can get some help. Even though it sounds like you've got some good help, sometimes you know you gotta you gotta turn another corner. Sometimes takes you gotta practice. open another door, right? It yeah, it takes practice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're so <laughs> right. You're so right there in that practice. regard. Thanks again for taking your time. Thank uh, you. Taking, uh, sharing some time with us, and I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. You take care. All right, you too. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest, Ferran Dozier, for being on the Veterans Lounge podcast today. His story is so fascinating, and I'm just I'm just glad to see another one of our uh, military veterans uh, be successful, um, be successful in dealing with those the difficult transitions that we that we deal with as military members and I'm, I'm glad to see him uh, work his way into a light that is hopeful and that is positive a huge thanks to you guys as well who tuned in to listen to Ferran's story and all the stories I share here on the Veterans Lounge podcast if you're a veteran currently dealing with the challenges that come with uh, separation from the military I hope I hope Ferran's story and and the other stories that we share here, I hope that you were able to gain some knowledge and some some information, some perspective, um, and maybe some direction as to how to proceed in your transition into civilian life, difficult as it may be. If you enjoyed this episode and you're listening to it on podcast form, please share it with your veteran family and, and friends. Let them know that they can hear it pretty much wherever they get their podcasts. If you're watching it on YouTube, please like the episode, uh, subscribe to the channel, and share it once again with your family and friends, veterans. Share it with everybody, but share it with your veteran friends and family. 
mostly, right? Particularly. Um, please comment, comment, share some feedback. Constructive criticism is preferred. However, I recognize that there are some jerks out there who just have to be jerks. And, uh, you know, you can put whatever. <laughs> it's, it's whatever. It's whatever. I'm a, I'm a big kid. I, I, I can take it. Uh, but for sure, I'm looking for, I'm always looking for feedback. So, you know, comment, uh, leave a comment. Tell me what you guys think. Uh, thank you once again to Ferran, uh, for being a guest, Mr. Ferran Dozier, uh, for being a guest on the podcast. Um, thank you again, once again for listening and for watching you guys take care. God bless. If you would like to be a guest on the Veterans Lounge podcast, go to veteransnexus.org slash podcast to learn how. The Veterans Lounge podcast is a project produced in association with the Veterans Nexus Foundation, where they put veterans first and provide opportunities for vets to meet their higher education goals and also find employment as they transition back into civilian life. If you'd like to learn more about Veterans Nexus, visit veteransnexus.org.